Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Once upon a time, there were two young women who spent their days in separate kingdoms, voraciously reading fairy tales by the fireside. They read about helpless princesses being saved by strong, brave men. And nasty, hysterical magic women being destroyed by strong, brave men, who were also, of course, saving helpless princesses on the side. It all seemed a bit, well, grim. Until one day, they realised that the stories they'd been fed since childhood were laced with misogyny, populated by terrible role models for both girls and boys, and full of absolute tosh that held progressive society back. So... They picked up their shiny quills, dipped them in ink, and then realised that would create a total mess, so put them away and opened up their laptops instead. And they wrote their own fairy tales. Which is how we find ourselves creeping through the magical forests to a little recording studio in an unknown land to find Sean Kane speaking with Jesse Burton and Kieran Millwood Hargrave. They start with Jesse reading from The Restless Girls. You see, the king could control the paths his daughters trod. He could take away their pleasures and their views and lock them up. He could make sure that the princesses didn't have anything in that room except their toothbrushes and tiaras, pyjamas and dressing gowns. But king or no king, there was one thing they possessed that he could never own. Their imaginations. Have you ever tried getting into someone else's imagination? It's practically impossible. Our inability to do so has caused headache and heartache since time began. Even your own imagination can be a slippery thing. You can't see it, you can't hold it, but you can certainly feel it. It can fill your day with sunshine or with storm. It will conjure worlds from nowhere and make them real. It will open doors you didn't even know existed. It will show you secrets that are yours alone. And the strange thing about imagination is that it can fly absolutely anywhere, even when your body stays in one place. I've seen it happen. Imagination was the greatest weapon those girls had. And one night, sitting up in their beds, telling stories as they always did, the princesses did indeed discover a secret. It was the most perfect, timely secret, like moonlight on a pillow in a windowless room. It changed their lives forever. And what was the secret? I'll go on then, seeing as it's you. (laughs) Jesse, I think I'd like to start with you because if people don't already know the tale, I think it would be useful to know the original Brothers Grimm story of the 12 dancing princesses. Could you tell us? Yeah, of course. Um, So in the original Grimm tale, there are 12 princesses and 
they don't have a mother they just have their father the king and the sort of the main premise of the story is that every night they descend to an underground world where 12 princes wait with 12 boats and ship them across a lagoon where they go dancing every night in this underground palace and every morning they make sure they're in their beds before their dad catches them but they have holes in their shoes and so their father becomes increasingly frustrated with this situation he can't get at this answer why they've got holes in their shoes so he issues a decree that the man who can find or can solve the secret of their shoes gets to pick anyone he wants for a wife doesn't matter which one and can inherit the kingdom great and (laughs) what happens is a lot of men come and they try and you know they try their luck and eventually a poor soldier in the forest gets given an invisibility cloak by a hag a very useful hag (laughs) and she says don't drink the potion And he obeys her and he gets to follow them underground under the invisibility cloak. He stalks them. He takes evidence of the forests through which they walk as proof to the king. And then he essentially outs them, shames them and reports on them. And his reward and the happy ending of the original is that that the eldest daughter's hand in marriage and the inheritance of the kingdom. And that's the end. Yes, it's such a strange end, especially reading it. Because I think when you're a kid and you hear these fairy tales, you sometimes just go, okay, well, that's how things are. And I think that's possibly, like I'll bring this up later, but possibly a motivation for wanting to write modern fairy tales and revamp some of the attitudes in them is that you just accept that that's the the way things are. Yeah. Um, And I remember as a kid just being like, okay, like th- that's how things are. and then reading it now is so jarring because you're just like well yeah what, what what is what are all these women doing why are they being punished for wanting <laughs> to go out dancing why are they punished for wanting fun you know possibly with men that they're not married to yeah. you know why are they not even named which is a a, a thing and and so to, to read your book and then suddenly realize oh well here's the backstory this is you know these are the names of these girls these are the things they like like mm. even just I, I smiled at just the the mention it said and um, Amelia wanted to be a vet and I'm <laughs> yeah. just like that's so nice to think about a princess that wants to be a vet that's such yeah. a nice detail I mean so how did you decide you know with this book and you have this this tale first of all yeah. when did you realize you wanted to, to change things and secondly how did you decide what you would change yeah I mean I think it's just so interesting what you're saying about that kind of authority that you just accept as a young reader and and it's so potent yeah so I I was approached by Bloomsbury you know would you be interested in doing a sort of feminist rewriting of a fairy tale and I said absolutely I had had in mind that I'd quite like to write a book for children and I was kind of cogitating how on earth I would get that done and how I would approach publishers with that so Bloomsbury sort of (laughs) cut out the middleman which was amazing and um I I knew it was going to be the 12 Dancing Princesses almost immediately because when I was growing up, it was the one that I latched onto in a way only through the sort of glamour of the girls' shoes and their dresses and that sense of freedom and, you know, sparkle when they're dancing. I, I had sort of glossed over all the sort of <laughs> problematic elements and I... I felt very strongly when I read it as an adult again, good Lord, these people, like you just said, there's no names. The point of view, really, if you're looking at it, you know, through the camera's eye, it is through the king and the soldier. It's the soldier's triumph. And his behaviour is incredibly suspicious and depressive. And I just thought that's going to be a huge change I want to make. I want the princess to be centred in this story. It is a story about them. And I also wanted to question the issue of rescue and the happy ending 
and this idea that really, you know, you have to be to a degree in life quite self-reliant. And I wanted to emphasize the sisterhood between the girls, but I also wanted to retain the humor and the joy and the magic that I think is the reason why fairy tales endure for young readers. Karen, we're talking about sort of self-reliant girls and sisterhood. Can you tell us a little bit about the the family of uh, the, the characters, particularly the three sisters in uh, The Way Past Winter? Yeah, so there are the three sisters, Mila, Pippa and Sana. And once I'd arrived at Mila, the other two sort of formed around her. So it was she was always very central, being the middle child. And my parents always teased me that I was sort of the middle child because they had a much-loved cat and then I had my <laughs> brother. So <laughs> I was sort of, I felt that I kind of identified in that respect. And basically, I've always wanted to write a book where sisterhood was central because my friendships, my female friendships in particular, are so central to my own life. And I still think that in a lot of books, female friendship in particular gets sidelined either for romance or for friendship between a boy and a girl, which of course is, is very important. But I really wanted to show these this relationship and the, the sort of the tangled emotions that come with it, the love, the jealousy, the way that you have to sort of step outside yourself when you're living an experience alongside two other people and say they might not be feeling the same way I am, even if we are going through exactly the same thing. And that always has interested me, the way that people can experience exactly the same things and have totally different takes on it. So they're all incredibly individual, but they were all built around this central Mila character, who I suppose is quite similar to how I see the world. Mm. And it was really interesting looking at how Sana and Pippa then see the world in opposition to her. And it's quite a magical world as well. It's not necessarily rooted in what we might say like a Scandinavia that we recognise, but there is certainly, it feels like a lot of Norse mythology that's perhaps influenced yes. this. Can you talk about what the the inspirations behind this, the setting and the story itself? Well, from my earliest memories of storytelling, of course there were fairy tales, they're so ubiquitous, but also there was Beowulf was my dad used to read that aloud to us when we went on holiday mm. fun times <laughs> a bit of an interesting choice uh, absolutely terrified me but I was always drawn to Grendel's mother so my interest has always been in those sort of marginalized characters from the very beginning so that definitely infused and and the Vikings and this idea of explorers and adventurers and I did steal quite a lot as well from Slavic um, mythology so there's this idea of Koshkoi the Deathless who hides his immortality on this mythical island that's ruled by the winds and as readers will discover there's very much an element of that in my book and so I just really wanted to play on not get too attached or too wedded to any one particular myth and actually when I started writing this book I wasn't certain that it was going to have this really magical element and then I started writing and I couldn't help myself <laughs> and that always seems to happen with my books Chapter 1 The House in Eldbjorn Forest It was a winter they would tell tales about a winter that arrived so sudden and sharp it stuck birds to branches and caught the rivers in such a frost their spray froze and scattered down like clouded crystals on the stilled water a winter that came and never left. Three years passed, then five. People spoke of curses and offered up prayers and promises. They blamed madges, their neighbours, the jarls who ruled their villages and towns. But blame didn't break the winter, and soon no one could remember warmth except from fire, or green apart from the silvery hue of the fir trees. 
Carts were abandoned in favour of sleighs. Fine horses lost their worth until they were all traded for mountain ponies or mewling husky pups or other animals that knew snow. Bears sank into perpetual hibernation. Wolves slunk into the shadows of the vast forest. Some folk moved from their frozen land, but most stayed and, as people do, changed to fit their changed world. They changed their stories too. Gone were tales of honey and plenty. Tales became warnings, sharp as bee stings. The fire geese who bore the sun on their backs in summer became ice wands who nip at exposed fingers and toes, snapping them clean off. The river nymphs became ice maidens who stalk the bottom of frozen lakes, waiting to pull wayward children under. Wistful voices spoke of magical islands where spring waited, of waterfalls of gold streaming into pools of sunlight, but always these places were just beyond reach just past the frozen horizon. In the winter's fifth year, its grip still tightening on the southern river towns and northern mountain cities, a whole new order of cold wove itself tight as a basket around the families that lived in the remotest parts of the land. And it was in a small house tucked in a narrow pocket of forest rhymed with snow thigh deep that three sisters and their brother were having a disagreement over a cabbage. We were talking about, uh, I alluded to this before, about having the authority to feel like you can change things. And often reading The Way Past Winter and also in The Restless Girls, it's often, if we're going to talk about these books as being feminist fairy tales, it's often most visible in the small details. And I was just thinking in terms of In The Way Past Winter, there's just these little instances, even on that first page actually, just mentioning that um, when you have this long winter, the legend immediately confers responsibility on ice maidens and this sort of idea of like a cunning, uh, evil female figure that has caused all this unfortunate um, circumstance. How did you, did you, I mean, because often these things, even in real life, are most visible in the small details, did you ever, either of you, catch yourself up in any sort of insidious, I suppose, unfeminist detail that maybe fit well in the framework of a fairy tale, but you actually have to go, oh, wait, no, no, like, th- th- that's not the sort of story I want to be telling. For me, it tends to come more in relation to my male characters because mm. I am very much a believer in, in order for the world to become fairer, men have to be feminists as well. Mm. And the bear, my villain in The Way Past Winter, he started off as a complete character of a villain. You know, he was a very he's a very masculine, swaggering presence on the page and, and he the way he smells is very intrusive and everything about him was sort of repugnant. And I think I had to work really hard to make myself understand where he came from. And so I, I needed to humanise him, even though he's a supernatural being, I needed to make him empathetic in some ways because we are writing for children I do think there's an enormous responsibility in that to show that people are made the way they are and also can be unmade and can change so for me it's always in my treatment of male characters Hmm. the the female characters they come quite naturally it's but I imagine working with a retelling it might be a bit harder it's so interesting you say that because I would yeah I completely agree that it's the girls I feel like I don't I don't want them to have to work hard to fight the system or that you know they come fully formed they are who they are it is the the male characters who have to do the work who have to be exposed <laughs> if you like and so 
ironically, I suppose in the retelling of a fairy tale, the king is sort of behaving exactly the same as he behaves in the original. Mm. But what I wanted to, to, to shine a bit of a light on is this, is that sort of, and I know it's becoming a bit of a sort of watchword, but toxic masculinity mm. at, in action and, and how damaging that is, not just to the girls, but to the court, to the country. They're always at war rather than working on their grain supplies and, you know, their diplomacy with other countries because he's just so caught up in his own moods and his own emotions. I mean, he sounds a bit like Trump when I'm describing him. <laughs> and he's, but I, I also, and, you know, like Kieran said, you know, you, you want to present a more nuanced personality as well. The king, in my version, he's grieving the loss of his wife. Mm. So I was trying to look for some kind of psychological explanation as to why he's being so draconian towards them and and robbing them of their hobbies and locking them up and it's because he's frightened Mm. and he doesn't know how to express that fear of losing them as well as his wife his wife Laurelia dies in a car accident in the book and um, I thought it was also important to have all the advisors in the palace are all men still Mm -hmm. I thought that was probably quite realistic in this fairy tale setting but Obviously, through the process of the book, that starts changing. There's going to be a different leader by the end of the book. But it was important for me as well to create an advisor called Clarence, who recognises Frida, Princess Frida is the eldest sister. He recognises her qualities. He recognises her as an asset and he's willing to lift her up. And I just agree with Kieran that until, you know, the, the male characters are the ones who, the ones who go through a, a journey you know you're not going to make any progress the mm. girls the girls are the girls like you know they're probably always the same and and it's just it's just about shifting the energy and analyzing that that that, that male behavior brexit means is back after an extended break for an in-depth look at where the process might go next if indeed it goes anywhere with britain due to leave the eu in less than six months time no solution yet in sight to a hard border on the island of ireland no clarity whatsoever on the future relationship and tempers starting to fray on both sides of the channel join me john henley as we ask can the government's brexit plan ever really happen and what if it doesn't just head over to guardian.com slash podcasts or search for Brexit Means on your favourite podcast app. It's suppose in, in Kieran, in your book, I mean, there's so many things a little bit like that. So even just the details of um, at the start when uh, the house is visited by this, this male stranger that Mila says a swear word. <laughs> <laughs> and he immediately says, man's language from such oh, a little girl. Yeah. Oh, I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> and just all the small details as well in, in your book, Jesse, of just the king absolutely losing his mind about the idea of yeah. his his daughters inheriting anything from him. Yeah. You know, I wish I had a son so I'd have an heir. It's like, well, you have 12 heirs. And I know. Frida's being very he reasonable about it all. tiny boy. So that's all I ever asked for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of these things, these are recognisable attitudes in, in our world. And because you're writing for kids, is it sort of important for you to, even though these are fantastical, sort of magical, you know, fairy tale worlds, to still root it in something that is recognisable to demonstrate to your young readers that there is actually something exceptional happening here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's that fine line you have to tread that between sort of being overly didactic and sort of professorial, but also, you know, remembering that it's a, an escapist tale and it's a pleasure that you're offering. You're offering a gift. 
but yeah I think because the way that children read books if they fall in love with the book they're going to read that book again and again and again and it's going to synthesize into their sort of psychological architecture Mm. more than an adult novel where yes it might be enjoyed but it will be put to one side and forgotten so yes I try not to underestimate that responsibility but I also want to retain that certain naughtiness and transgressiveness that I think attracts children's stories completely and absolutely that's for me what sets apart children's literature is this may be their first favorite book Mm -hmm. and you never forget your first favorite book both these books are aimed at the ages when I can recount sort of reading Matilda for the first time and really encountering these sort of the transgressions as you say are what make her delicious Mm. and you definitely want your your characters to have to be children because children are naughty they lie and they you know they they get what they want um as much as possible and that's something that really attracts me to writing them and especially with my girl characters I suppose I do like them to be not polite because often children on the whole you know seen and not heard but especially girls Mm. are encouraged to you know sit down and read which wasn't a problem for me I loved reading but you know we're encouraged to to make silences of ourselves and I really want my female characters to speak Mm. and not to be silent I mean that's so funny talking about Matilda because one of my questions was I was thinking about the reading that was really important to me as a young girl and I was thinking that actually a lot of them revolve around my growing awareness that my gender could actually be a problem for me and I realized that the probably the books that made me learn this the most was Tamora Pierce I I loved Tamora Pierce is a fantastic fantasy author particularly good for sort of uh you know perhaps 12 and up but um I was wondering in terms of your books about let's say apart from Matilda what were the books that really inspired that awakening because I think everyone has that book for me the northern lights was seminal in so many ways not least because lyra was so unlike many of the female characters that i'd read before and actually in my own writing as i've grown up i've reacted slightly against what lyra is because she's she is transgressive she is naughty she lies fluently and i was very much not like that so i loved reading a character that was really bold and really brave and had this epic adventure. But as I've started to write my own books, I want to write for the girls like me who didn't see themselves in books because they'd never go on adventures. <laughs> because they were very happy in the corner Stay at home. with their book. Exactly. <laughs> so Lyra was sort of my awakening to the fact that a girl could have these, what we did normally attribute to, to masculine traits, these, this kind of boldness you know with her little friend Roger she she sort of guides him on this adventure and and that was something that I found really really exciting. How about you Jessica? Well I'm just trying to think because I you know it may be an awful confession but I I don't really remember Mm. a moment of epiphany like that. I think I just I didn't read unthinkingly but I just constantly read and I think for me potentially between any boy characters and girl characters I didn't necessarily pick up that there were discrepancies Mm. of availability of adventure possibly because of what I was reading so I you know Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe there are always two boys and two girls and it was Lucy who goes through the wardrobe first I mean yeah if we're going back that was something that I always remember but I didn't remember it as 
there's someone who I recognise. I think I just assumed it was me anyway. Mm. I, I think actually, weirdly, I became maybe more hobbled as a, a woman reader as I, you know, was sort of in my early 20s. I really? think I just read quite freely and not really conscious of gender issues. Um, I just consumed literature and didn't really view it through that prism which is kind of cool like it's yeah, quite a yeah. release to just be like well you know that's a boy but I could do that too I think yeah. I was just quite I just had that framework I think I think I had that frame of mind so so I always had that with um like things like Famous Five yeah just like, exactly you know uh, what was the younger sister's name I only remember George oh see George is but George is like kind of revolutionary because she it's was true, just yeah. this sort of the little she was always constantly reminded about her gender but she just yeah cried, exactly didn't give a crap she just yeah. do whatever she wants but she didn't like being a girl that's no. what i didn't that's didn't what she? i reacted oh, against yeah. she she wants to be a boy you know she mm. and and i think that's one of the problems is that like i was saying to describe lyra masculine traits and hopefully we're breaking down these gender binaries but definitely still at the time i was growing up mm. that felt a thing that mm. George sort of went around in shorts and said, I want to be a boy, call me George, not Georgina. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and like the, uh, Anne was the sister. And Anne's position it. was basically, she was about eight and she was basically the mother of the group. Yeah, and that's how she justified her presence, <laughs> was she fed everyone and made sure that they were, you know, <laughs> okay. When I think about it, like somebody like Shirley Hughes mm. with her graphic novels like Chips and Jesse, which is a book that I really love, that's, you know, 80s. And I think sometimes if you look back, the, the, the girls were in trousers and they're kind of, there was a, a blurring of mm. the lines and you it, it wasn't that much of a, I just wasn't conscious of it being a problem. Jessie mm. did the same things as Chips. What a great name. <laughs> Chips, not Chips, not Jessie. <laughs> and then at the end of C.S. Lewis' series, doesn't what, the older sister get locked out because she likes nylons and boys? <laughs> Yeah, and that was when C.S. Lewis lost me. It was only at the yeah, very end. Yeah, exactly. So like, oh. That's when it starts getting hugely yeah. problematic, isn't it? Mm. Because it's like, well, you can't. You're not. If you're interested in those things, you're not allowed in this 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 fantasy world you're of adventure. A dirty woman that likes <laughs> nylons yeah, and bodies. You're a sinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was thinking about the miniaturist and um, and thinking of Nella mm. in particular, and I remembered that there were a couple of reviews when the miniaturist first came out that sort of noted upon Nella's what you might call feminist qualities, yeah. her ability to speak out and sort of damned them for being sort of <laughs> anachronistic and saying, well, you know, she wouldn't have been like this no. if this was the time. Does any part of you feel like there's actually a responsibility to not perpetuate those pictures of womanhood no matter when mm. your book is set? Because yes, I was like, yeah. well, why is that a flaw? It was so interesting to me how annoying people certain people <laughs> that, that like Nella and and Marin as well spoke mm. back and I guess I just didn't realize that was going to happen I just sort of put two and two together from my research about women at the time in Amsterdam you know they were marrying later than any of their European counterparts they often worked right up to the marriage and also during the marriage and the widows often inherited their dead husband's businesses and I sort of took that and ran with it and I just I didn't well, I wasn't trying to be hugely sort of iconoclastic but I, I think it's interesting if you compare Hilary Mantel's attitude to that where she's very much like no my queens like Anne Boleyn and everything within Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies are operating in a hugely non-feminist mindset mm. 
I just didn't even think that I'm not doing that or I am doing it. It was just, I asked myself the question, if a girl is locked away in a house with nothing to do all day, but she's been sprightly and bright, what is she going to do? She's going to get frustrated. And it's a question of who has, in history of literature and culture, depicted those portraits of femininity and womanhood. It's often not been the women. Mm. It's been a dominant male voice, a dominant white male voice as well. You know, th th those those quieter voices or those marginalized voices have not been able to define themselves. So yeah, I guess in some ways it was an unconscious rebellion, but I, you know, I, I don't regret it, but it was interesting to me that it was a point of irritation to mm. some. And because these are kids' books, so often, even in here at The Guardian and on our desk where we've got women who take books home constantly, they often come back after taking some books home for their kids and say, oh, well, my son wouldn't read this because it's got a girl on the cover. Mm. And it's it kind of, it still amazes me, but I know that this can't be, this is definitely not a unique thing, but certainly just from women working here and working with books so much and they have such a range of books that, you know, they're taking their books home and they're being enthusiastic about them and still they have sons that don't want to read books because they're about girls. They often do enjoy them after they read them, but they're not drawn to them and they don't want to read them. I mean, in your experience, because you both have written children's books and you've both interacted with young readers... What have you observed about this attitude and what can be done to, to change it? It is hugely frustrating. This is one of the things that has sort of plagued my career to date <laughs> because my first book was called The Girl of Ink and Stars and mm. featured a girl silhouette. My second book featured butterflies on the cover and my third book, perhaps the most gender neutral of all my covers, <laughs> but still has a girl on the cover and why not? You know, mm. the, the main characters are girls and in the second book, the butterflies are a very important motif. But it is something, I don't want to change what I write in order to appeal to boys, and I don't think I need to. As soon as I meet a reader who's actually read the book, a boy, they will have enjoyed it because they're adventure stories, and who doesn't enjoy an adventure story, no matter your gender. And I don't write for girls or for boys, I write for children. And I do like to have representations of girls in my book because I did still think they're sorely lacking but boys need to read those as much as girls do it is an issue and it's one that I have talked about with in terms of my covers in terms of the presentation of my books I do want them to appeal to as broad a range as possible and I don't particularly want to change the covers in order to do that but it's something that I'd certainly consider in future books because I need I think these stories do need to get into the hands of of boys and unfortunately we're not at a place yet where a boy will willingly pick up a book with butterflies on the cover hmm. no matter its contents yeah and that's really sad because why shouldn't boys love butterflies they are awesome <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it is interesting and it is you know publishing isn't still incredibly gendered mm. you know and especially as authors are being expected to step up and present themselves as brands as well as writers you know when I turn up at schools I think I'm exactly what people expect and that's all so always slightly disappointing <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes want to turn up and surprise people I want to you know I want male authors to be writing extraordinary female characters as well mm. and I think that across the board there just needs to be this shift in understanding that the books about girls are for boys too mm. and we're not there yet I right. think 
I couldn't really put that any better. (laughs) I mean, I haven't had much experience yet because this is my first children's book. Mm. I mean, I I see it with the adult, you know, men, you know, a lot of men say, oh, I wouldn't normally pick up your book. Oh, really? And then they read it and they're like, oh, I I really liked it. But then they always tell you. you. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They don't hesitate to let me know. But they do do it generally in a kind of, I was a bit of a fool. Mm. and I'm glad I did read your book and others you know they just say well I really liked your book mm. but yeah so that's you know that then you're looking at that starting from a young age and yeah oh it's I don't I don't know how you you crack that really mm. and because you know I've got a, a young goddaughter and her parents have brought her up you know she's got a tall box with some fairy wings on and she goes around like fixing all the doors in the house wearing her fairy wings <laughs> and she loves pink and there's been no pressure from any, where does it come from? She was barely out of nursery. And mm. it's just this, it's, I don't, you know, it's, it's a very difficult battle to fight. And I think, yeah, Kieran's right. You know, as authors, we, we are asked to sort of consider our public representation as authors, not just the books. And, you know, I've had people ask me already, you know, is this a book that a boy would like? And I, you know, I can't, I, what am I going to say? No. <laughs> He'll hate it. He'll hate it. It's (laughs) full of girls who do things. But, you know, I really think about this, like, in the history of literature, as women and girls, we have had to be ventriloquists. We have had to inhabit boys' bodies for so long and learn, you know, place ourselves in, like, male-led adventures for so long. And it's it's so annoying that it should be such a challenge to request the opposite. Mm. And as you said, children don't tend to problematise that. No. You said in your earliest reading experiences, you didn't, you know, either gender, it didn't, yeah. wasn't a barrier to your enjoyment. And it starts with the parents, mm-hmm. it starts at home and, and failing that, it starts at school. And, you know, with the attack on libraries in schools at the moment, it's really quite worrying because I do think people get so much of their early experiences from books because their access to television, etc., is limited and you can't sort of choose what you want but you're allowed to choose what you want to read Mm. I can always remember that I was allowed to pick whatever I wanted at the library but I couldn't watch you know (laughs) I couldn't watch anything past eight o'clock so (laughs) I think that that's really worrying yeah one way of combating it is possibly having a queen that died as a racing car driver which I absolutely just loved. I mean, it's, like, it's a bit favorite. sad that she's dead. I know. She's I know. a racing car driver. <laughs> it's such a great, because Angela Barrett, the illustrator, has just done this stunning portrait of Queen Laralia in her kind of 20s motor racing gear next to her car. And I was like, <laughs> yes, you have nailed that. Nailed that. Yeah. Sean Kane was talking with Jessie Burton and Kieran Millwood Hargrave. Jessie's The Restless Girls, with illustrations by Angela Barrett, is published by Bloomsbury Children's Books. And Kieran's The Way Past Winter is published by Chicken House. Both are out now. Next week, we look at the power of the word to reflect and challenge the politics of the day, whatever day it happens to be. Terence Hayes channels his fear and bewilderment at living as a black man in Trump's America in his collection, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. Plus, we'll be paying a visit to the British Library to see how Anglo-Saxons channeled their feelings up to a thousand years ago in manuscripts ranging from Beowulf to the Doomsday Book and the Lindisfarne Gospels. Then, as now, the written word both reflecting and challenging power. Until then, as ever, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. And join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, luckily, for now, we hope 
We are all living happily ever after. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.